to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast for the American Bar Association focused on data security and privacy. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, the Global Privacy Team Lead at Beckage, and I am extremely excited to welcome our guest today. Peter, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, So, Peter, could you introduce yourself to the listeners and what your current role is um, uh, that that you're currently engaged in? Yeah, sure. So my name is Peter Fatelnik. I have this complicated Austrian (laughs) surname. And I'm the person here at the EU delegation who is dealing with all the digital economy policies. Now, Jordan, did you know that the European Union has an embassy here in Washington since 1954? I did not know that, actually, until we met. And I was very shocked to hear your role because I went, oh, I didn't know that that was something that existed. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's actually a very good observation because when I signed up for this job a couple of years back, I, I had the feeling digital economy was a bit of a boutique stuff. For, for a nerd, and maybe a tech background would be useful. But uh, we all know over the last 12 months, it's really just, just exploded under the main, main political stage. It really has. I mean, with the Schrems 2 decision and just everything going on with the digital economy, you're sitting sort of at that apex between the EU and the US. And it must be so fascinating what you do on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I wonder if you could sort of maybe describe your journey to where you got to being in that sort of more diplomatic role and focusing on the digital economy. Well, uh, it, it will perhaps be surprising to you and our listeners that, no, I, I, would, I would have never dreamt of coming here and in a diplomatic role. That was not on, on my chart in the beginning. Uh, when... Uh, when becoming a skiing champion, and I remind you that I grew up in the Austrian mountains, became obsolete as an option at the age of 14, I actually pivoted to technology. I, I got two engineering degrees, and my thesis work was in chip design for video coding and decoding. So I was really staring down the technology track. And at that time, I already had a bit of an entrepreneurial background as well. But yet then, then when I worked a couple of years, I had this feeling of how do I make a bigger impact on society and, and, and how can I help? That was in the middle of the 90s. How can I help to get Europe a bit more organized on innovation policies and getting this tech stuff really work for the economy and society? And this is when I started working for the European Commission. And I have to say, thanks to many great leaders I have met there, I could do lots of stuff, lots of new stuff doing things differently, which for a bureaucracy, as we often called, is not evident, and also things fast, you know, and taking a bit of a leaf out of the book of Silicon Valley, you know, do things, break things, be fast in, in this innovation policies. That's really interesting. And to have been really part of the EU system for so long, I mean, we haven't had the EU for 
that long really and its current its current iterations so you really have been a part of the eu system while at the same time the digital world has just become so more dominant um on the international stage so you've really you've been even part of that entire journey <laughs> in, in it, it it was a fascinating journey as as you as you just think back uh, the internet is not that old i mean uh, the whole evolution we have undergone here what it means for work and life just the last 12 months, everybody knows, but the last 20 years is even a much bigger impact we have had. It's true. It's definitely true. Um, so what will not be a surprise, we're going to sort of delve into some of the EU perspective, which I think will be really interesting for a lot of our listeners. Um, and, you know, I think so many people, when we think about the EU, data privacy is so top of mind, especially because the GDPR, you know, went into effect a few years ago. It's really dominated a lot of the international conversation. But I sort of want to ask about sort of data privacy's, you know, cousin, you know, sibling, et cetera, which is cybersecurity. Um, and really, you know, if you could set the scene for how has the EU generally approached cybersecurity um, within its initiatives? Mm -hmm. that, that's a quite an interesting question. And there's a bit of a historical issue or, or, or narrative to that. Probably every one of our listeners would expect me to say, well, the rich in for cybersecurity is fighting the bad guys. Um, but I don't think it, it has been, or cybersecurity threats have been really the origin for, for European cybersecurity policy and the starting point. Also, because cybersecurity actually came quite late onto the European agenda. And I, I remind your colleagues that the European Cybersecurity Agency, ENISA, started only in 2004 which is some 20 years after computers and the internet started permeating our workplace and our life. So here we have seen the evolution of what member states across Europe have been doing coming late into a European coordinated approach. Uh, so we still actually today approach cybersecurity very much from a technology side, improving cybersecurity products and services, almost by design, rising the standards there, make, making sure that cybersecurity technology gets integrated using the latest technique and the highest standards are applied. So there's a bit of a thinking of, you know, we need standards, we need, we need to lift this, this playing field and essentially and eventually rise the cost for our adversaries. So I know this does not protect Europe from, from all the threats we are facing these days, but it underpins a bit of a systematic approach of, you know, first you need to have the technology in place, safe and secure. Then you think about the processes you need in operating them in a safe and secure fashion. And, and then you build out capabilities for, uh, for adversaries or, or dealing with cybersecurity threats. And I think we have spent a lot of time on the first two parts and I don't mean it as a criticism, but one needs to be also clear-eyed. Sometimes I don't think we are so well prepared in facing cybersecurity threats. And do you see that as an area of potential sort of international collaboration on the cybersecurity front is sort of addressing those threats? I mean, that is the challenge in cybersecurity. You know, it's usually not just one company, it's many companies. It's not just one country, it's many countries. So, you know, has Europe, 
evolve because it's getting pressures from outside? Is it be, is it like, how is it sort of trying to evolve its cybersecurity initiatives to address those threats? Yeah, I think John, you're, you're always right that pressure from outside helps. I, I think this is, this is true in almost every situation that if people approach you <clears throat> with ideas or ways of how they do it, I think that's a useful way. The European wide cybersecurity attribution framework uh, was only agreed in 2017 and used only a few times. And the last time, just a week ago, when when the United Nations, uh, the United States designated Russia as uh, as the source of the attacks related to Microsoft uh, server breaches and the SolarWind attack. So this was mirrored then on the European side with a statement using this attribution framework we have in place since a couple of years. So you see here cyber diplomacy at work. You see here political processes at work of coordinating uh, of coordinating the, not just the designation of a, of, of, of a country violating cybersecurity norms, but also all the preparatory work leading up to that. And I think that this was a very good example. And we see more of that happening now. Mm -hmm. More of that, com that combined. Um, and I think it, we're only going to see more and more of it as these events impact across borders. I mean, that is the challenge with technology is that it, you know, our laws and our countries see borders, but technology does not see any of those <laughs> and increasingly <Yeah>. less so. <laughs> I think it's also the current, the current U.S. administration uh, has fairly early on uh, shown shown an attitude of reaching out to like-minded countries, of using a strategy, uh, concerted approaches, or using international norms in dealing with these issues. And I think in this case, we, we clearly see a very quick, maybe simple payoff, but it's working. Right. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, so I know we sort of, we, we talked a little about the cyber initiatives, um, but I'm curious to see how you see the interaction between the very heavy focus on privacy within Europe and those security initiatives and how they're interacting. You know, is the EU going to be able to use its authority under the GDPR to push cybersecurity in the private and public sector? Are they going to use these other initiatives? Is it going to be approaching it from both sides, trying to get to that happy medium? Um, you know, how do those two worlds um, interact within the, within the European Union? <laughs> uh I think you, that's a big chapter you're opening here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let me let me approach it with a couple of lines of thinking, and then then let's see if we want to go further on any of them. First, privacy is a fundamental right in the European Union. So I guess for any trained lawyer or policymakers, uh, it does not come as a surprise that the fundamental right is underpinned with a regulatory framework. I mean, that's the way these sort of things are. So the GDPR is just the latest incarnation of the framework, which, which first milestone was the Data Protection Convention of the Council of Europe back in 1981. Convention 108 for the historian among us is, is a very interesting reading because if you do, you will actually discover 90% of the GDPR have been there 40, 40 years ago. Perhaps without, without the enforcement framework, I would agree, but still in terms of concept, it's, it's, it's not that new. So that was one line of thinking. Another one is uh, this, this long tradition of thinking in the European Union that 
technology should play a big role in implementation of the GDPR. <clears throat> and in fact, not only the GDPR, but in pretty much every other policy framework these days too. Because the normative power of technology, the scalability, the diminishing cost are seen as just attractive forces to, to harness for policymaker. So what, what, I'm, what I'm saying or what I would like to say is that in the implementation of the GDPR, we look at an as cheap process as possible and not necessarily want to see if this is a job generator for lawyers and consultants. And Finally, I think uh, one element we, we, we look here as well is that uh, these technology investments in the GDPR pay off in terms of security too. The UK Department for Digital, using non-EU sources, found uh, that the overall proportion of organizations experiencing negative outcomes or impacts from a security incident was significantly lower in the preceding years. And they suspect this is probably true because of the increasing security measures ensured through the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. Uh, so, and, and that finding is, uh, there are plenty of other reports, for instance, Cisco's annual data privacy benchmark study clearly links lower costs of data breaches to higher investments in data privacy technology. And, and this is something we, we are glad to see because this is something we hope for. But nevertheless, even if it were not come, those, those savings, uh, privacy is a fundamental right and needs to be implemented. And so, I think you highlight that fact that privacy, I mean, you can't have privacy without security, right? Because part of privacy is protecting the data and security is about protecting that data. So that overlay is very tightly combined for sure. It's, it's, it's the typical case where, where privacy or the GDPR obliges you to install a process. And by doing that process and investing in the process and the technologies to run that, you get as a benefit the security coming with it. Uh, i give you a simple example. of one, uh, one article in the GDPR requires you to do a data inventory. Well, you know, if you don't know what you, don't, what you have, you're definitely at risk. Well, if you know what you have, you are already a little bit less at the risk because you understand what the risks are before you didn't. So it's this small process-oriented transformations in an organization which then help create a, a safer and more secure digital environment. That's such a good point. I, so many companies, I think, just benefit from doing a data inventory and knowing what systems you're standing up because once you know that it's so much easier to secure that data it's so much easier to develop processes so you know part of the value of the gdpr for an organization is just going through the exercise of implementing gdpr because it's very illuminating um and I actually think that more companies can find cost savings, even though they see this as a costly endeavor, that there's actually cost savings on the other side. Not always, but they're there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, cost are always a difficult issue in, in a company. But the question is, is it a cost or is it an investment? Because in that sense, I think you can see it as an investment which will lower the risk, will lower uh, the, the risk of losing money in case of an incident will lower your legal risks you're you are taking. So in that sense, it's probably more of an investment, a long-term investment, and should be seen as, as something like that. 
And that's a good segue because I sort of want to get your thoughts looking forward. So I know the EU recently adopted some cybersecurity objectives for the next five years and sort of want to get your thoughts on how you see those impacting business, both within the EU market and then sort of its international digital economy and how that cybersecurity objectives are going to play a role in both of those sort of spaces. <laughs> Maybe that's the time for for a bad joke, <laughs> and and you know for me a bad joke is one where you insult everybody with a bit of truth. Uh, so I think when you talk about cybersecurity strategy and when you now just inquire about it, uh, what always comes to my mind is that Europe is great in strategy, but then sometimes pretty bad in execution. <laughs> and and in America, I have met here very often pretty much a lack of strategy, but then they excel in execution. <laughs> so, I don't know which is worse or better, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, I think what is indeed true is that the uh, European Union has repeatedly produced every couple of years very fine strategies for cybersecurity, elaborate documents, analyzing the situation, laying out their actions for the years ahead. And and I think the, for the, the main reason for the latest incarnation of, of the cybersecurity strategy from December 2020 was that 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 huge increase in the attack surface we have been seeing in the last last number of years, but probably mostly in the last 12 months. This is through the proliferation of devices connected to the internet, the Internet of Things but also teleworking, just exacerbating the, the cybersecurity risks. Uh, so, so we have to address this theft of data, of goods, of money by digital means. And that has rapidly been increasing everywhere worldwide, but also in Europe. Just to give you a figure, 40% of EU users have experienced security-related problems. And 60% even feel unable to protect themselves against cybercrime. I mean, these are, you know, very, very solid figures. This is like having a house and no lock on the door. Uh, I mean, you feel a little unsafe there. Uh, so, so I think the cybersecurity strategy we have put forward tries to address how can we make businesses more resilient. And this is something that has been the word of the last 12 months, resilience, notably in face of the pandemic, but also that resilience of making our, our processes we depend in our life and in running our economy much more resilient. And that needs to come back to the three stages I said, better technology in the beginning, the pieces you buy to run your, your business need to be much more secure. The way you integrate them and run them needs to follow higher standards and then you also need to set aside the capacity to deal with the issues because the issues will come. No company will be safe, at least for the moment, from, from cybersecurity threats. And I wonder, you know, thinking about the challenges that Europe faces that might be distinctly European, you know, do you, from, from your perspective, is there challenges with 
incorporating member state perspectives on cybersecurity as well as these EU perspectives, because I do know there's different competencies. And when you're dealing with things that might be more national security and police powers, those are typically more in a member state capacity versus an EU. And so cybersecurity might be sort of an interesting use case because it sits between both an EU and a member state competency. So I don't know, does that, does that add to the challenge of, you know, obtaining these objectives and the strategy? What one part of the strategy is dealing with the, the Internet of Things or devices, connected devices and networks. And I think the, the whole conversation on five on the 5G toolbox or 5G security is very illuminating and is a very good example. Uh, there are various lines you can take here. One is that, you know, shouldn't we adopt an approach of of any piece of hardware can be breached and and therefore the doesn't matter what hardware you're using, you need to build systems around it or software systems around it to make it secure, which generally would suggest we use white white label hardware and, and doesn't matter whether this is coming from China or produced from China because you have to assume the hardware is not secure. So there have been quite a few people in Europe thinking along those lines and which is not necessarily wrong as cybersecurity attacks come on on all sorts of hardware. And, and that could be American, European, Chinese, or whatever hardware. That's not really the issue. Yet we have seen a very different approach across a number of member states. Some, you know, who, who are more invested in different technologies take uh, different decisions than others. And, and on 5G, we have seen as well, it took us quite a while to come to an approach which focuses focuses on the security risks, on the underlying security risks, and not necessarily focuses on the practices in one country, on the industry position of one country, which of course is the legitimate interest to, to promote. But, but uh, I, I think what we see very often in when, when policies move from a national level to a European level, they become a bit more rational, let's say, you know, much of the national elements and the passion is leaving. And then it becomes just sort of a boring exercise of trying to find an optimal solution, which is not necessarily bad in that sense. Right. Sometimes it can help to bring everyone to the table and you might find something even more creative that comes out of it. So, um, but that is something that I think is it's potentially a unique challenge, especially when it comes to the cybersecurity space uh, from an EU perspective. Um, I think we will see a lot more from the toolbox because the, the, the process we used in creating the cybersecurity toolbox, the, the analytical work, the conversations with the cybersecurity stakeholders and coming forward with the document which can, or document a, a process which can be applied can actually be applied in many different, on many different technologies than just 5G. You could, you could actually take the same thing and just kind of, or, you know, edit the word 5G and replace it with something else, probably artificial intelligence, for instance, and you would still get a strategy or an approach which would deliver a more, a more secure environment. Mm -hmm. And it's really getting the, the them to use the toolbox and getting that toolbox to be operationalized. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. 
Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really interesting to hear about the EU perspective on these topics and especially focusing on, on cybersecurity. Um, I want to end with one final question that I ask all of my guests. You know, if there's any recent book you've read on cyber privacy technology that you would recommend to the listeners. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the right moment to admit that I actually don't read books of that genre. <laughs> uh, that's okay. I, I that's, a find, fair, that's fair to say. <laughs> I do find that books about technology policy are a bit sensational at times <laughs> and then and that's just not not the kind of stuff. So I do turn towards academic papers uh, and because that work tends to be a bit more rigorous in research, more fact-based. But still, I don't want to leave, leave that opportunity unused here. I think it, I'm a great science fiction fan, and I reread a short story uh, just a few weeks back, which I found so revealing. It's uh, The Machine Stops. That's the title. It's a 1909 story, short story by Edward Forster about society where technology and convenience have taken over the life of people. And until the machine stops, so I don't want to give it away, but it's a hundred year old story and you will find it just so, so fitting our world today. And that, that's, I hope others will, will find it as well as interesting as I did. That's a great, I've never heard of it and it's going right on my list after today. So <laughs> the machine stops. The machine stops. Um, well, thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate you joining us today. Look forward to future conversations um, and hearing more about sort of what's going on within the European Union. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.